Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Peter, I think we need to step in here. You mean because of some of the numbers we've unearthed this week? Some of the shocking data? We'll get to the NFL picks later, okay? No, no, no. I'm not talking about NFL picks. I'm talking about 2030. No, it's not the year that the Jets will win the Super Bowl. Do you know what 2030 is? Yeah, it's when we have to have emissions down. And instead of reducing them, they're increasing. That's true, Jordan, but that's a little too global for our way of thinking with this number. Well, I can't think about anything else because we're all going to die and nobody cares. Underdogs, humans. <laughs> yeah. Before you die, you, you might just let us in on whether you saw Carl Anthony Towns holding forth on Anthony Edwards' eating habits at the podium. Maybe I could do a better job of teaching him how to take care of his body, you know, diet and everything. So that'll be on me. Um, I know y'all think it's funny up here when he talks about Popeyes and all that shit. You know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make me happy to hear, you know, we're high-level athletes, so. Because the number 2030, <laughs> no, that's not when either one of them is a free agent. It's the number of milligrams in an order of green beans from Popeye's no. of sodium. No. Oh, my God. I went and looked to try to find the healthiest item. So we could come on and say, stop eating chicken and biscuits, Anthony. Eat this, not that. Give some constructive advice. So I thought green beans have to be the healthiest item on the menu. More than 2,000 milligrams of sodium and a cup of green beans. Stop it. What are they, soaked in Chinese food? <laughs> Apparently a month ago, he said he had an off-season new regimen where he'd get rid of, he'd quit Popeye's entirely for just a few days of the week. From Monday through Thursday, he said he gave up Popeye's and that was his new diet. He was eating Popeye's continuously from Monday through Thursday. His, his cutting back was to go to three days a week of Popeye's. Going to Dane Moore, who covers the NBA, at Dane Moore NBA on Twitter said, uh, Anthony Edwards said he didn't eat any fried foods Monday through Thursday this offseason and said he's not going to have any fried foods during the season. And then Dane followed up because he's such a great reporter and doing the real journalism right here. He said, I asked about Popeye's and he said, not even Popeye's and definitely won't be ordering McDonald's at press conferences anymore. So there's a history here. He was ordering McDonald's during press conferences <laughs> and after many games last year, including one in February. He had Popeye's, a Popeye's bag at his press conference. I mean, I know he's an elite athlete and he's burning a lot of calories, but I looked at the Popeye's menu online and it's even more horrifying than I imagined. Okay, I got it. I figured it out. Five piece blackened tenders, 280 calories. That seems pretty great. Let me tell you the real problem. And this is sadly, I can speak a little about this from personal experience. If you're the kind of person who's regularly eating fried Popeye's and you have blackened tenders, what you're going to want to do is finish it off by going to Burger King for onion rings. You know what I'm saying? It becomes, it becomes a piling on because the good stuff isn't as good and tasty. You know, you won't be singing if you eat the blackened chicken tenders. You, you know it. Sing it with me. Love that chicken, chicken and Popeyes. Popeyes. Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner. Loose ball. It's good. With 4.4 to go. Shannon. Don't want to fall. Shannon from the corner. And it's over. Gonzaga. The flipper still fits. The cry goes up both far and near for underdog. 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 
underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guy's league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog. Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock and awe in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you. They're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, underdog. I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Welcome to the Underdogs Podcast. I'm Tom Haverstrow. That's Jordan Brenner and Peter Keating. Thanks to Anthony Mays for editing that cold open down from 47 minutes. We got a great show for everybody. We've got our esteemed guest... Third time on the show, the Chargers running back slash wide receiver slash media just extraordinaire. Austin Eckler is going to join us on the show. You know what? Enough of the preamble. Let's just get into it. Our conversation with the number one running back in PPR leagues, Austin Eckler himself. All right. We are joined now for a record third time by the official athlete of the Underdogs podcast, (laughs) The ultimate underdog himself, Austin Eckler. Austin, a hearty welcome back. I appreciate it, boys. Hey, always a pleasure to come back. You know, the three P, well, there'll probably be more. So, hey, good to be back, though. My role on this show is to make references that are so old that nobody understands them. So, I can confidently say Austin is to our show as Joan Rivers is to the old Tonight Show. Ah. See? Yeah, and you just lost the audience again. Ah. <laughs> See, I want to get that fall flat <laughs> moment out of the way at the very beginning. Ah. Austin, before we get into all our football questions, let's say you were a professional athlete and you yes. had a teammate who was consuming copious amounts of Popeye's chicken in season. Would you call him out on that publicly? How are they playing? Not well. Could be better. Like the Popeyes. Let's hold back on the Popeye slander. You're trying to assert yourself as a young leader. This other player is an even younger up and coming player. How would you handle that situation? I would probably approach them and be like, hey, not even from a football standpoint, like, hey, man, like looking out for your health in the future, like we need to make sure we're, you know, taking care of our bodies. Like, you know, we can use the whole car reference, like what you put in like fuel type of thing. And I'm not even talking about your performance. That's a whole different story, but your health in general, you should probably not be consuming a lot of deep fried chicken. Well, Austin, we have something to tell you about Justin Herbert. <laughs> Seeing as you were what all, all state defensive player of the year in basketball. Yeah. 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 Back in high school. I think the Minnesota Timberwolves may need to add you to the roster then to take care of this Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards situation. I don't think that's affecting the play. Uh, but I would say it's affecting something more important than your play, which is your health in general. So, uh, yeah, you might want to look into that. All right. So welcome back. How's the uh, how's the bye week going? And is this the highlight of it? Highlight? I feel like the whole <laughs> bye week will be a highlight because this is this will be a part of it. Yes, I think I have 30, maybe 40 interviews that like I'm just pumping out content, man, because just the value is is so, so there's so much upside to the value. And putting yourself out there. And I've really started to realize that, you know, the later parts of my career. So I appreciate you guys. Well, thanks for doing it. I mean, I kind of was hoping you had one interview and it was ours. <laughs> ah, ah, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, Maze, you got to edit that out. Just say you are the only one I agreed to. Turns out we have to settle for like being one of Austin's 20 favorite interviews this week. Yeah, if I only was doing one interview at a time, you guys would never have even known about me. I've never been on here. I've never True. got to this point. So all those interviews that I've done up to this point have led me to this moment. Just realize that. That's the clip. Yeah. All the interviews Austin has done so far has led to this moment. <laughs> yes. We are one of them. 
you basically came out of the show and made your case for being, you know, a top pick in the draft. Yeah, how's that working out? Curious. I think you've delivered. Tom, why don't you tell them uh, what's cropping up in your league, though? I have Josh Jacobs in my league and you are on a buy and I'm trying to sell high on Josh Jacobs and trying to acquire you Mm. because Mm. I kind of feel like in a bye week, the, uh, the Austin Eckler owners out there will be like, Oh, I I, got to replace his hole in the lineup. Maybe I'll take Josh Jacobs here or someone else. And then I will be able to profit later because you're, your clip is like something like 25 points per game in in a PPR league. So my question to you is, would you trade yourself, Austin Eckler, for Josh Jacobs? That's not even a real question. Are you kidding me? No. No, no. I, I mean, first of all, I'm never getting rid of myself. I don't care how bad I'm playing or if I'm like injured. I'll, I'll keep myself on my own roster um, because that's the only thing I can control in fantasy football myself. So. Yeah, never trading myself away. Are you aware of how close you are to the all-time record in fantasy points per game, like from a running back? I have no idea. Do you, do you even have a clue who has in NFL history the highest fantasy PPR league fantasy points per game? You're at 25. I have no idea. It feels like a good vet to bet. Jordan, you want to take a guess? I believe the, the answer is uh, uh, Cade McNown. <laughs> Among running backs, the answer is Marshall Falk in 2000, he had 32.9 wow. per game. So you're at 25. He's at 32.9. Do you even want to put your oh! body through what it would take? Wow. Wow. That is incredible. That is an incredible number. Wow. 32 a game? That's what he averaged? 32.9 that he averaged in the 2000 season. Oh. Greatest show on turf. Oh. You sound like you're in pain just thinking about like, oh my God, how did he pull that off? That is, that's incredible. That's an incredible record. Wow. I thought 25 average. I didn't know I averaged 25, but I thought that was good. Uh, I knew it was up there somewhere, but wow. 32. Good for him. So Austin, let me ask you. During the season, how much attention are you able to pay on on what else is happening in the league besides in your own building? Not very much. And I I tend not to care or try to dig too far into it um, because then I have to answer questions about it if I know a lot about it and I bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Are you at least picking up on the general theme of of underdogs this season where you've got these unexpected teams here in New York, the Giants and the Jets. You've got the Seahawks you just played. You've got the the Falcons team winning a lot more games than expected. And it seems like the margin between teams is as small as ever and varies week to week. Is that that as clear in the game as it is to those of us watching? As a spectator, that's very healthy for the league. Like that's a, that's really, really good for the league. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that's happening. Um, cause I, I work for the NFL. Um, so it's good for us. Good for our ratings, good for caps, good for guys in the future, good for benefits, right? It just has this domino effect of all these things that are good. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a great thing. I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad guys or teams that are, have been, you know, down in the past are not staying down, you know, for some of them. Right. Um, so there's this turnover, which is good. That's supposed to be seen. That's the way everything's set up. So, yeah, I definitely pay attention to that. Like, yeah, shout out to the Jets and even, you know, uh, both the New York teams, man, like killing it this year so far. So I have kept up with that. Yes. And then as a follow up, how are you seeing that play out on the field in terms of the competitiveness week to week, game to game? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think I heard someone talking about how like scoring's down like an average of like one touchdown per team um, this year. Um, so that was kind of interesting. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Like, is it? offenses are getting better defenses are getting better offenses are getting worse like what is the combination um i'm sure it's someone's you know taking keeping track of that but uh it's, it's just so competitive that and we get, we're going through right now with the chargers man ups and downs and you know we're supposed to teams were supposed to be you know supposed and this it just shows like that that doesn't mean anything like you have to show up and play every single week um regardless of who you have no one cares it also shows no one cares who you have on your team that is care what your record is right what's your wins what's your losses and so we're going through the ups and downs right now. Um, and we have 10 games left. We have a winning record coming out of the bye week. So I like where we're at. It's not a, it's not the best position, but it's not the worst. We're in it, you know, we're, we have a winning record. So, you know, we'll, we'll play it out. And I'm looking forward to just the grind for all of us down the end of the season. Austin, in terms of that competitiveness, fans tend to think we can see good or bad coaching and extra or less than stellar player effort. Is that something you can detect 
during a game against a team, do you ever find yourself thinking, yeah, this team's playing really smart or really hard or conversely, well, you know, what the hell are they doing? Or these guys seem like they're, they're giving up or not playing as hard as they should be. I would say no, the fans can, can't detect that because fans have this, I guess, predetermined vision in their head of what they expect. Right. But fans aren't, they're not in the locker room. They're not on the, they're not on the practice field. So they don't know the identity. They don't know the personality of a team, right? Like the personality, you might not have a lot of rah, rah guys that are all jumping around always, but that's what fans want. They want to see people jump around, dancing, having a good time winning games. Right. Cause that's what, that's what the NFL is. Right. That's what, you know, successful energetic teams do. Right. That's it's, energy looks very different for very different people, depending on the personalities that you have on a team. Um, so just cause you're not seeing that, you know, which you might see more, I guess, in like a college setting, I don't even know. Um, or just on different players that maybe you're fans of, uh, I, I would caution to say that, Oh, that team isn't going hard or isn't, you know, ha- having a lot of energy because you're not seeing that type of thing. I'll leave it at that. Can players tell that? Because I guess what I'm saying is like the narrative here, for instance, in New York, right, is the Giants didn't have a lot of talent, that Brian Dayball is now some transcendent coach. Uh, They're playing every game they played has been a one score game and that they're winning it in the fourth quarter because they're so well coached and they're playing so hard that they're they're compensating for a lack of talent. Can players, are are you able to tell how a team is achieving success or, or, what the talent gap really is or how well coached they are when you're playing in a game. My question would be what to that would, what does it matter? Does it matter? Maybe only for sustainability, but yeah. Yeah. For sustainability. But if you're able to sustain that for the first seven weeks, which they pretty much done, right. What are they? Four and four and two, five and two, six and one, six and one. Yes. 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 Who are we talking about? The jets or the giants? (laughs) Giants, the giants. Oh, giants. Okay. Uh, The jets. Five and two. Okay. That's what I was thinking of. Um, Then it's like, that's who's counting. That's consistent, right? Like there's some consistency there. Um, and obviously Saquon, you know, is doing his thing. So that definitely helps to have him back healthy, um, which I think is a determining factor in a lot of games or team success is how well you're able to run the ball. Um, Cause that's going to help you be consistent. That's going to like 80% of turnovers on pass plays. So if you can run the ball, you're protecting the ball possessions, all those things um, that play a factor into you winning the game. So yeah, there's, there's a combination. It's a combination of both for every team, right? How well you coach and how hard and how, you know, much energy are you guys bringing to the field and how much do they care about it? Um, And then, yeah, there's definitely teams with more and less of each. And that's the combination that you're trying to find as an organization is teams where we have a coach that can bring energy, bring us our good plan um, and then players that can also do it. But it's not just like, oh, we expect that. So it's going to happen. Like stuff takes time to build and actually, you know, get going in the right direction. And um, that starts back in OTA's training camp. Um, so that's why you see these these changes, you know, I think so often as far as coaches, because you to build something around somebody, it starts way back. You can already start feeling it and evaluating it way before the games are even played. So you've had a couple injuries on the team, whether it's Keenan Allen or Mike Williams happening here. Um, you've seen your receptions go up even past like wide receiver totals, you have 7.6 receptions per game, which is more than Devonte Adams, which is more than Travis Kelsey. I could go on and on and on. I think you're on pace for the most receptions per game by a running back ever um, on pace to beat Christian McCaffrey's record. Who is now uh, in California as well. My question is, do you see that sustainable? Like that number, do you want to stay around seven seven receptions a game, or do you want to actually carry the ball a little bit more going forward? But of course, some of this is out of your control with the injuries to you, to your wide receivers. I don't want that to stay up. That's way too high. That's way too high. If I was going crazy and scoring, you know, touchdowns off of those and average of 13 yards uh, uh, reception that, yeah, that let's keep that going. But it's, that's not the case. It's like, Hey, we can't throw it to anybody. We got to check it down to Austin. I'm getting five, six, <laughs> seven yards. Um, and what, why has that been? Because we've been struggling to run the ball. Uh, we've been struggling to run the ball. So like, okay, how, how can we get the ball to Austin in different ways? Well, it's coming, we're passing the ball. Now it's coming in a check down because now teams are like knowing, Hey, they're struggling to run the ball. We're going to play too high. We're going to put six in the box. They still can't run against us. And now we know they're going to pass the ball. So now they're able to cover us downfield and we're not able to run against them. So where's the ball going to go? It's got to check down. Right. And so it's not a good thing. It's not good. Like you might see stats. Oh, you're catching so many balls. Like you're so great. No. It's because we're being one dimensional. Um, we need to, you know, we need to expand 
our effectiveness as an offense. Um, and then I'm not saying I don't want any catches. Like I'll still get a few in there, but it, I want it to be more so stuff that's actually drawn up to go to the running back, not just no one's open. I got to check it down. You're kind of like LeBron James here. Um, and I'll make this analogy. I don't know how many times you get likened to LeBron, but when LeBron was playing for the Miami heat, they wanted him to play the four because he's built like Carl Malone. Right. But LeBron wasn't so comfortable with setting screens because he would have his back to the basket and he normally likes to see the defense and like to command the floor as a point guard and look in the other direction, look like a point guard surveying the court. When you're a running back and you're getting a carry and pulling it from the from the quarterback, you can actually see the defense. Whereas as you're catching a ball off a pass where are your eyes? And is that uncomfortable for you to see, to like have to follow the ball, catch it and then know, man, I could be totally blindsided here. Well, I mean, yeah, you have to have some spatial awareness as, as a running back and know who's around you, you know, and you kind of get that as you're running your route. Um, and so to catch the ball, obviously you have to be looking at the quarterback and it's not necessarily where I'm looking. Cause I mean, in general, everyone has to look at the quarterback. It's where I'm catching the ball. Like I'm catching the ball three yards behind line of scrimmage. I'm catching it at the line of scrimmage two yards. And so like, there's a lot of guys behind me deeper in the field that can come up and make a play right as a receiver. If I'm running a 15 yard route, there's only like two, three guys behind me. I have everyone behind me. Right. So the awareness and the, the chances of me making a bigger play right? But awareness has to go up. Chance of me making a play goes down because there's a lot more guys, you know, in the deeper part of the field. Um, and so that's what I would say on that. And so, yeah, my eyes are still coming back to quarterback, but then it's just awareness of, okay, where did I last see someone running? Where was that guy coming from? Where's the soft spot that I can maybe get to once I catch this ball. Um, and there's an art to that. That's actually, I would say there's a skill to that. Um, and something that has to be developed because some guys don't have great spatial awareness and it shows, and they're probably not catch, catching a lot of balls. Um, and so that's why we're still able to stay effective with me throw, throwing me the ball, um, because I, I do believe that I'm probably one of the most efficient uh, running backs catching the ball uh, out of the backfield. I was going to say, I mean, despite the fact that some of those or a lot of those catches might be on checkdowns, still averaging more than 50 yards a game, receiving more than seven yards a catch. There's a lot of offenses that if they were forced to constrict themselves to just dumping the ball off to running backs, wouldn't be getting seven yards of reception out of those running backs. Yeah. And there's right. That's w why I'm sticky. That's why the charger keep me around. <laughs> there's one of one. Wouldn't you rather have the ball in space than between the tackles? Or is that a, a misnomer? I would. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think more potential to be made out there. Um, but also I'd like my receivers to have it more in space than I'm getting it in space um, because they're running down the field. I'm at the line of scrimmage still. Let me follow up on that. I think you can make the argument right now that sort of running back is the underdog position in the NFL, only in that sort of the common narrative right now is that lifespans are short at the position and that you shouldn't pay big money for running backs that when they get on the open market, just bring in another one, fresh legs, yada, yada. It really sort of dehumanizes running backs. And certainly the, if you look at average salaries, the position value is down. Yeah. You have this amazing class of free agents coming up, Saquon, Kareem Hunt, Tony Pollard, Rashad Penny, Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, etc. And you're already seeing like people don't think the Giants are going to re-sign Barkley because they have too many other issues to address and, and yada, yada, yada. And running back is a luxury. I'm wondering how you respond to that narrative and B, if the way to separate yourself as a running back is by catching passes and bring a different dimension to the table so that you almost are like having a, a receiver and a back in one, if that's a way to separate yourself. Man, I, I would totally say no, no. <laughs> I would say the running back position is not a luxury. I would say you could probably look at a lot of teams and if they're struggling to run the ball, they're probably not, you know, doing so well. Um, whether that's, they have a quarterback that can run the ball or they have a stud running back that can run the ball. If you're looking at teams that can run the ball, they probably, um, are doing a little bit better. I would be actually be interested to see the records of the, of the teams that are able to run the ball. Cause one, if you're running the ball, what does that do? Well, you have less you know chance for, um, uh, turnovers. So you have, you're keeping more possessions. And then two, if you're running the ball, you're not needing or desperate for chunk plays that you see when you needed behind and need to pass the ball. So, cause you need to catch up. Um, so saying that it's a luxury, I definitely disagree. Like you need to establish some type of run game in the NFL, even though passes are flashier, they get more chunks. We're paying these quarterbacks all this money to throw the ball down the field. You do need to have some sort of balance. Um, 
And so I would say, yeah, these guys that look running back, it's a tough position. Like we get beat up. And so that's why I would say is that's why I say is the reason for um, maybe us not getting paid as much because of that. Not necessarily because, oh, it's not that it's not as important. It's just that we get beat up so much. So guess what? We're going to rotate a lot of guys. We're going to have, you know, sometimes guys using teams are using two running backs, right. As their main guys. So a lot of, a lot of cases, right. Cause you can't really take the full load of a running back for one guy. That's why you have receivers that can play the whole game. Right. Cause they're not getting hit, you know, 30, 25 times a game. And then I guess my follow-up to that is that if you're an elite level high school recruit, okay. And I'd heard some trends about this a while ago and you can play both ways. Why not sort of opt for defense, become a corner or a safety, going higher in the draft, getting paid more, don't take the same pounding as a running back. If you were advising a young player like this, I know it's it's strange to ask considering the position you play, but if you're looking just from a bottom line perspective, if you could do either, which would make more sense? If I'm talking to a high school player, I'm telling them, don't even, you're not, don't even think about the pros don't even think about college. Like you're looking way too far ahead. Like you can't, you can't look that far. You need to dominate right now. Like that's what you football is about what you're doing right now. If you're trying to foreshadow about, Oh, like when I get to the pros, ah, your head's in the wrong spot. Well, I mean like a top senior who's being recruited by is a two-way player. You play the position you're best at. Got it. You have to, you have to put the chips on what you're best at. And if you're like, if you're good enough to play two different positions, then that's, that is a luxury. I would say, uh, if you're able to do that. Um, but I think you play the one that you actually enjoy more in that case, not necessarily look at the pay because you need to be, you got to realize this is a grind. This is a long time, a lot of football that's going to be played. And if you're getting burnt out because you don't like the position you play and you're like, dang, I, I like playing receiver, but I went to DB. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it, man. Like you got to be committed to what you put your chips in on. Um, so that's what I would say. I would say play the position you're best at. And if you have options, play the one that you like the most, because that's going to help you continue to love the game. Just want to point out again, this is coming from somebody who's caught more than 80% of the passes thrown his way in an NFL career. So maybe, maybe analytics should listen a little more to this. I mean, analytics often seems to say, Anybody can be a running back, but not just anybody, right? Not, not every team can find an above replacement level running back to take care of the stuff that Austin's talking about. Maybe we should listen a little more to that. There's things that analytics can't, can't quantify. I would say the, the biggest thing is how much heart you have into what you're doing, right? Like how much you actually care, how much you actually put into it, right? Are, are, you, are you one of these guys that needs their hand held and dragged to class and, you know, needs to have the playbook read to you and in the huddles, stuff like that, so you know what you need to do, um, but you're a great player? Like, you're going to get burnt out real quick. You're going to get weeded out of the NFL real quick. But if you're a guy that's showing up, getting your stuff done, still having success, that's a guy I want to bet on because I think that guy's going to be able to persevere even over guys that don't or that might have more talent than him coming out of college because when you get to the NFL, guess what? Your hand's not held anymore. You have to be a pro. You know, in college, they're going to hold your hand through everything, get you through everything, right? You get to pros, man, it's on you. Because guess what? There's a lot of guys that are even hungrier than you are if, if you're the one that needs to get your hand held in pros. And if you're that good, it's like, I would say 1% of 1% are that good that will hold your hand in the NFL and, you know, drag you along because you're that good and you can't afford not to have you on the field. But for the most part, nah. Yeah, that's the biggest thing that can't be evaluated is the heart and mindset. There's a story out in the NBA about Daryl Morey, the president of the 76ers, who asked Bill Belichick, like, yeah, you talk about heart and you talk about, um, you know, desire and getting all that stuff. But how do you quantify that? Like, how, how could you quantify someone's intangibles, which is kind of like an oxymoron? Um, and Bill Belichick was just like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I don't quantify it. <laughs> Monday night, I'm watching Monday night football, the Manning cast and Vince Vaughn asks the Mannings like, Hey, what do you think about analytics? And they both said similar things, which is like, yeah, you can't measure heart. You can't measure uh, work ethic, all these sort of things. And I'm wondering like analytics has become such a buzzword. And I'm wondering if there needs to be a rebrand because I also find that analytics is just another word for information. Um, and so when you're looking at a scouting report, a lot of what you're reading is numerical. Like this, this team likes to go with this scheme X percent of the time, or this player averages this amount to the left or to the right. How much of the actual scouting report would you say, or like your preparation for a game actually has like a number on it? <laughs> Zero. 
Zero. <laughs> That's the number. Really? Like, you have no idea if they play cover three or cover two, what percent of the time. That has nothing to do with the number. Okay, you're saying like in the red zone, I guess. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, okay, I guess I guess it wouldn't be zero. If, if you're looking at that. Yeah, it's tendencies. I'm talking like you're, you're thinking individual stats. Like, oh, this player has this many tackles. This, per- this person runs this 40 time. This person does this. No, 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 no. Yeah, if you're, if you're looking at analytics as far as like, hey, you know, in the red zone, they're going to play cover seven uh, most of the time. Or they're going to play, you know, single high man. Stuff like that. Yeah, we're, we're looking at that. And we can re- I can recognize that, you know, at this point and just. Sure from playing enough football. Yeah, I guess it's just not necessarily numbers. It is just communicating those numbers. So t- if, if there is some, t- some scouting report that it needs to be translated to the players. So it's not just like paralysis by analysis where it's just a bunch of numbers. Yeah. So we were talking about recruiting and then we went to, so I was thinking in the recruiting mode, as far as week to week, I was thinking individuals as far as week to week, really it's, I guess, tendencies in like, I guess, numbers, so to speak, in this context of like percentage of like what type of blitz they bring, you know, like where they're bringing that blitz, um, which, you know, higher tendencies when you get into like the 40, 35 range, right. They're trying to kick you out of field goal range, like third and third and longs, third and shorts, like those yeah. type of tendencies. Absolutely. That's a huge part of, of the game. So we can have some type of anticipation. How often when you line up on a play and you look at the defense, do you know exactly what they're going to do on that play? There's some disguises, but if I'm in a route, it's pretty obvious for me. Like if I'm in a route, I'm a running back. I'm staying next to the quarterback. If I'm looking and there's no running, if there's no linebacker over the top of me, okay. Either this D end is guarding me or safety's coming down to guard me from the top of the field. Right. If there's a linebacker over the top of me. All right. If it's, if it's man, this, this linebacker over the top of me, he's got me and man. Right. And then I'll start to release. And if he's not, if he's not running to me, then it's like, okay. It's some type of zone. He's dropping out. So it's, it's, really not that complicated. It's it's simple, but I would say not easy because you have to be able to recognize it on the run while you're playing fast. Let me ask you one other question on, because you talked about inability to run the ball and, and running backs and so forth. Um, can you run the ball without a good offensive line? Can anyone run the ball without a good offensive line? No, no, you can't do, you can't, you can't win games usually without a good offensive line, unless you have a super dynamic quarterback. Why, why don't people seem to realize how, how critical an offensive line is to the functioning of an entire offense and how you almost can't evaluate a quarterback if he's getting pressured every play or, or just the, the, a play caller, if he can't use half his playbook, if they can't protect longer than a, a second and a half, right? Like, is, is there anything more important than the offensive line in football? No. Running backs. No. Austin Eckler's. <laughs> no, yeah. there's, there's not. <laughs> I don't care if you have the best quarterback. If he's getting sacked, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if he's getting hit and he's running for his life, it doesn't matter because now he's got to turn into something that, you know, he might not necessarily be. Unless he is, like I said, a super dynamic quarterback. If he's Lamar Jackson and can mm-hmm. spin out and run around and then throw the ball down the field, then or Jalen Hurts. Hurts like if he's one of those guys that can run around and do that. We don't talk about Philadelphia here, by the way. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, you might be able to get away with it for most part. That's very rare in the quarterback spot that where you can actually be that dynamic and actually still um, throw the ball down the field and be efficient with it. I think fans want quick fixes to problems that are obvious, and by the time you have a, a below average offensive line, it's going to take years of drafts to fix it, and nobody wants to hear that. They want to get they want to get the big free agent in to make their team better like this. But they blame the quarterback. There's also five of them, right? And they're not cheap to find the good ones. Mm-hmm. These guys are expensive if you have good ones. So if you're paying. Five people, a high salary. Guess what's going to also then, you know, get taken away from all of your skill play, right? Now, now you got it. That's why we want young guys. We'll probably have some high paid tackles, maybe high paid center guards. Like maybe you can protect them a little bit with those guys on the outside. But yeah, if you're going to pay all these guys and beef up your old line, then you're taking away from other parts of, of your game. And that's just offense. I'm talking defense too. I know we got to let you go here, but I mean, you, you're really good at playing football and it seems like you're really good at media. And now you're talking about salary cap and roster construction. <laughs> yeah. Which team are you, which team are you buying Austin? That's what we really want to know. <laughs> Feels like you want to be an executive in the NFL too. Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't. I don't look Fine. football is football is a, is a, as a short-term opportunity for me to have some type of long-term um, options in my life. And I'm just using it, using the media outlets, using obviously the platform, the monetization, um, the access that I have at this moment and the concentration of focus on me because I'm scoring all these points for fantasies and in this coolness you know, factor of the NFL, just utilizing a, an opportunity, so to speak.
you can deny it all you want, but I know you want to be standing at, at CU one day with all the small college players from Colorado holding a stopwatch and telling 99 of them they can't Never. The next drill. <laughs> Never. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, you remember that. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to be in that position. I want to be helping those guys try to fulfill something more than football. And if football helps them do that, then so to speak. Now he wants to be an agent. He wants to be Spencer no. Strassmore. Here it comes. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. After mm-hmm. talking with Austin and watching Saquon, I'm ready for the all running backs fantasy draft next year. No wide receivers <laughs> at all. We don't need prima donnas. Mm-hmm. We don't need to waste our time quantifying this, you know, the speed. Mm-hmm. You know, we just line up, line up all these guys who can run and who have heart. Heart. That's right. Pick them all. That's right. Immeasurable heart. And then run the Wildcat. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate you coming on with us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me back. Looking forward to the next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm a little upset here. I haven't quite decided to trade myself for maize. I'm in such a hole right now. I think the last three weeks I've gotten one of my picks and I've gotten five wrong. Yes, what are the standings? Because we need to show Tom that there's still plenty of time to mount a comeback, as at least one of us has done recently. Jordan, 17. Peter with five points last week, 15. And Tom with two points in three weeks, 12. Wow. That's a collapse. I felt really good at the first few weeks of the season, and then it's just, you know... I got to stay focused. I got to laser in. I got to drink my AG1 greens. I got to make sure I'm all over my focus, my concentration, my third eye. All of it needs to be open on this round. And I think I do have the first pick this week. Is that correct, boys? It is. Look, as Wake Forest's college football performance has bumped up, clearly it's diverted your attention from the pro game. That's okay. I mean, they're 10th in the country now. There's, There's compensations. I'll make that trade. It's either that or he's eating too much Popeyes. (laughs) Love those green beans at Popeyes. (laughs) Okay. I've got to make this pick here Uh, with the first pick. I'm going to go with Arizona plus four. Oh, my, my number one game on the board. Oh, at mini. Okay. I went and looked up at the NBC sports edge betting tool. Um, The games that uh, the point margins or the spread are four and five. This season between four and five. So four, four and a half, five and five and a half. That margin in the spread is 14 and five against the spread. So that underdog four to five and a half point underdogs are now 14 and five on the season and covering the spread. And they're just under 50% in terms of winning outright. So Arizona getting DeAndre Hopkins um, under the fold, Rondale Moore, Robbie Anderson, I feel like that has stabilized their wide receiver attack. And I think Kyler Murray is going to come back in a big way this week now that he has his full complement with full practice time ready to go. That's my pick. Kyler Murray's QBR without Hopkins is 47.3. Oh, 
with Hopkins, 64.3. It's not just that he's throwing for more yards, yards per play, yards per dropback. They've gained, when Hopkins is in the game, their rushing attack increased by half a yard per play. Uh, I know everyone out there says he's not supposed to be the savior. Forget that. He's like the mo- one of the two most talented guys on the field. He is the savior for that team. And by the way, of all teams that have played better than their underlying stats uh, should suggest, um, I mean, Minnesota is favored this week, and they have the most unsustainable record. I mean, they've won games by four, three, seven, eight. There's still a four point, not three and a half. It went up to four points against uh, DeAndre Hopkins back under the fold, as Tom put it. Um, this this is a, <laughs> under the fold. Yeah, what is? Yeah, it? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a newspaper. Um, it's I was a, just gonna it, say, isn't that a newspaper term? Could be uh, in bed, right? In the fold is really what I wanted to say. Give me that game all day long. What do you think, Jordan? Did you like that too? I don't have a strong feeling on that. It was not my top pick. Well, I'm just happy because this guy who's come, coming in hot, Peter, last few weeks, they were number one on his big board. So I'm very excited about this. Now I want to know who's number two on his big board and in this week's draft. Including the playoffs, Aaron Rodgers has made 234 career starts without ever being a double-digit underdog. This week, the Wait, Packers- I see one. I see one. Is that not correct? Is that this week? I saw in 2006 on the NBC thing. I'm sorry. Now that you have a password to some <laughs> websites, you're going back to 2006 to interrupt this, this, this monologue where I'm going to claim that he's deservedly appreciated and that streak, though that streak will end this week, uh, why not? Why not take the Packers as a huge underdog at Buffalo? Road dogs are 36 and 26 against the spread this year. That's gigantic. Um, big underdogs have done better than narrow underdogs this year. But more than that, look, anybody who watched the Packers play, they look know that they look like they're out of sync, especially last week. Last week, they had five drops that could have completely changed that game. Um, also, I don't want to say Buffalo overlooks anybody because they look like they're a team on a mission this year, but they just had a huge game, huge, big, close win against Kansas City. Next week, big game over sudden divisional rival, the New York Jets. Now they're playing a team that looks like it's stumbling. Um, you know, the only reason I've done well the past three weeks in this pool is by picking teams that look absolutely hideous to the point where they may be underestimated by the betting markets. So give me the Packers plus 11 at Buffalo. Well, speaking of hideous, I too will choose a hideous team. Uh, The Panthers are getting four and a half points at Atlanta. You're going with the Panthers here? Wow. And this is not an overreaction to (laughs) Carolina's convincing win over Tampa last week. Really? It's more a statement about the fact that I, I, I like Atlanta as a pesky underdog that keeps things closer, but they shouldn't be favored by four and a half points against anyone. So this is a play on the number. I'm getting more than a field goal here in what should be sort of an ugly game. Uh, I, I don't have much more to say than that. I just think Carolina looked feisty last week. They've got a decent defense. I expect them to keep this close enough. So give me Carolina plus four and a half. Now ridicule me. Well, I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last week, we talk about drops that Mike Evans dropped to like open up the game where Tom Brady threw a bomb to him. And then he just, it just hit off his hands like six times. And it was, it was going to break open the game early and maybe they don't recover from that. Um, there are a bunch of drops for Tampa Bay last week. So I think Carolina actually a little bit of a fluky win. Um, but you know what, if you're riding the hot team after they have the big upset last week, um, I just Atlanta is what five and one against the spread this season or six and one against the spread this season. So I'm going to go with uh surprise. You went with Carolina. I think this game is, is a mess that is impossible to call given that fact four and a half points spread. I can see where it would look attractive, but these are two teams we've been betting. We've, we, we, we've been placing our faith in because we think that they looked so terrible that they've been underrated in the spreads. Uh, given that, I mean, I just, I just don't know. I, I, I saw this game existed, and my, my, my visceral feeling was stay far, far away from trying to predict anything about it. What's your second pick here, JB? 
can we pause for a second? I'm having a little more trouble with the tool. <laughs> Title of his new book, Trouble with My Tool. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, for my second pick, I was torn between two games. I am tempted to pick Cleveland. I was trying to look up divisional Monday night games. Can't do it. But I did see that home underdogs of six and a half points or less on Monday night in the past 10 years are 29 and 20. Uh, so that led me toward Cleveland. But that's not risky enough for me. The upside isn't there. Oh, no. So I'm going back. To a team that has rewarded me well in both season-long oh, oh underdogs no. picks and in some of our weekly picks. It's going to be a horrible game. That's right. I'm going with the Bears plus nine <laughs> at Dallas. Oh, oh. Am I overreacting to a performance in New England? Probably. <laughs> Is Dallas's defense going to break the Bears in half? Most likely. But I'm getting nine points. The Bears seem feisty. And I got to stave off Peter, so I need that extra b- potential bonus point upside. So give me the Bears plus nine at Dallas. Short week. I don't like that one, but you know what? I probably you should fade everything I'm talking about over the last few <laughs> weeks. You'd be doing pretty well. So short week. I'm. Uh, that's a tough one for me. I looked at that, but ah, uh, then again, I thought the Patriots would eat Justin Fields and the rest of the crew alive, and they didn't. So there you go. Back to Peter. All right. I had picked the Jets for what seemed like 16 weeks in a row and because I believed in them at the beginning of the year till they got bad enough that I didn't pick them and then good enough that they were no longer underdogs heavy enough to pick. This pattern is repeating itself with my next pick. That's right, the Detroit Lions mm-hmm. getting three and a half against Miami. Look, uh, Miami has been outscored by opponents by 18 points. Um, they're exciting They're crazy. They're not as good as they look. Detroit's defense has been blown off the field more than once. However, I think the Detroit offense is just simply the best unit on the field in this game. And whoa, and and sooner or later, they're going to score enough points to outscore an opponent. This is the perfect setting. This game gets no bonus points for me because of Miami's negligent handling of their concussion issues, which we can go into another time. If anybody wants to hear me continue to rant about that, I am not, I'm not, not favoring Detroit anymore because of that. I just think, good Lord, we all know why we like Detroit at the beginning of this season. We know the defense hasn't held up, but it's time for the offense to show up and, you know, put up 30 points. And this, this is as good a week as any for them to do it. The best unit on the field facing an offense that has Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. Well, <laughs> those guys are going to look pretty good against Detroit. They've looked good against everyone. <laughs> They've looked pretty good. Give me Detroit plus three and a half. Good luck with that one. All right, I'm going to go with Pittsburgh plus 10 and a half. Uh, I've been burned by Mike Tomlin before a couple weeks ago. High risk, high reward. I'm chasing some points here. <laughs> I am ch- I need some points. And with 10 and a half on the board, the Eagles, I, I don't feel great about betting against the Eagles here. Um, but you know what? Pittsburgh 10 and a half is my pick here. So I've got Arizona, Pittsburgh. Uh, Peter, you got Green Bay and Detroit and Jordan. You got Carolina and Chicago. Let's see if my fall from the ivory tower from a few weeks ago continues. I think you'll get back under the fold. There's no need to fear a quaver. Underdog is here to save her. Underdog. So guys, it's not just football season, although my fandom may be done. There is this World Series thing coming up starting Friday, and there's an underdog in there, the Philadelphia Phillies. What do we make of this? Well, I would like to say um, the Haberstro family, because we're Red Sox fans, have a slogan in our group chat, Stros for Stros. <laughs> and that was purely because we hate the Yankees so much that we are a family united against the enemy of our enemy. We are now Stroh's for Stroh's continued. I guess uh, we're rooting for the Astros here, but that means that we're rooting for the favorite because they are pretty much, um, I are a lot of people picking the, the Phillies here just because of their, their storybook run here through the postseason. Stroh's for Stroh's used to be just about the family beer, but now it's about rooting. <laughs> You're showing your, showing your age. Yeah. 
Our family, my parents are always said that like in order to teach people how to pronounce our last name correctly, they would always say Stroh's like the beer. That doesn't work in the younger generations. It doesn't work in like, this My millennium. friends are like, what are you talking about? Stroh's <laughs> beer? It, does, do you know, if, like, is, is it Miller Lite? Like that's the only Bud Light, Coors Light, we're good. But what the heck is Stroh's? Yeah, the, the wife and I like to crack out a Paps Blue Ribbon every now and then while we watch the Mets. The uh, I, he, the funny thing is, there's a couple of interesting things. The um, everybody who says the Phillies don't deserve to be in the World Series or they're just going to get blown out. It's interesting because the Phillies applied the formula that fans who don't think it's all about clutch hitting, who are a little smarter than that, think you need to win the World Series. They have two aces. They got a, guy, a bunch of guys who hit home runs. They got a bunch of strikeout arms in the bullpen. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. It didn't work for the Mets or the Braves. And people should realize that nothing really ever works all the time in the postseason. But at the moment, it's working for the Phillies. They've, you know, they won their series. They deserve to be here. It, it is, it, it's nobody else's fault that there's so much worse team than the Astros. But, you know, the Phillies didn't over or underperform their expectations. Given how many runs they scored and allowed, they won just as many games, 87, as you would expect. Here's the thing. In a seven-game series, a 106-win team that's really good enough to win 106 games, like the Astros, will only beat a team that's good enough to win 87 games, like the Phillies, 62% of the time. So again, we just run into this. As, as bad as the Phillies may seem, you know, they went eight and 11 <laughs> uh, going at, at, at the end of the season. They were not particularly hot. Um, as bad as they seem, they have more than a puncher's chance to win just because it's baseball and it's a small sample size of games that determine these series. I will say when we looked closely at this, the Phillies did do a few things. They drastically improved their bullpen after Joe Girardi got fired. That's probably the key reason for the turnaround. I don't know if you guys remember, but the Phillies lost a whole series of just like bone-crushing walk-off, extra inning, ninth inning, just, just, just soul-destroying losses in a row in May. And that's why Girardi ended up getting fired. There was a game that probably sealed his fate where I think – it was Bryce Harper hit a two-run home run over off of uh, Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning, and then the Phillies blew the lead that he gave them anyway. And that was after similar losses to the Mets and Atlanta. Um, I looked up that game. The relief pitchers in that game included James Norwood. Um, mm. Let's see. Uh, Corey Knebel, Brad Hand, and Nick Nelson. All those mm. guys have, have two things in common. Uh, one of them is that they're kind of not good. And the other one is they're all off the team now. The Phillies reconstructed their bullpen. Andrew Bellotti was in that game. He is still on the team. But the rest of those Isn't guys- is Brad are, Hand still there? I don't think he made the postseason roster. Yeah, yeah. At least, not, at least not for the World Series. He's been pitching in the playoffs. Well, Norwood and Nelson didn't, and Knebel's <laughs> no longer with the team. Um, since June 3rd, when uh, Girardi's gone- Phillies ha bullpen has the 10th best FIP in baseball. And the, this goes to another point, which is the gap between their FIP, their fielding independent pitching stats, and their ERA is the biggest in baseball because the Phillies defense has generally been terrible. I mean, they rebuilt this team to have three left fielders in the outfield, right? Schwarber, Harper, and uh, Castellanos. Um, so Jordan mentioned the other day that they did trade for Brandon Marsh and he is a really good fielder, and that has made a difference. But in general, they got terrible outfield defense. Alec Bowman, Reese Hoskins <laughs> anchoring the infield defense. They're one of the worst defensive teams we've seen get this far. But, but, you know, but they do hit home runs. They did improve their bullpen. And I'll give you one cool guy to watch because he could be a sleeper for next year. Matt Veerling, who was supposed to take over center field, got pushed out by... Uh, Odebel Herrera and uh, Mickey Moniak before they got Marsh. His expected batting average is in the 88th percentile of all players, even though he hit something like 230 this year. He's finally hitting, not because he's on some kind of a hot streak, but because he's finally hitting in accordance with his underlying stats and his exit velocity, his launch angle. And he's been really great over the last, really good at least, over the last couple of weeks. So, um, but other than that, it's, it's not like we've seen secret improvements like we you know hidden improvements like when we looked at Baltimore or you know they acquired a superstar i mean they're just in 
87 win team that's with a lot of guys who are hitting home runs. Guys, what shirt am I wearing? What, what does this say? <laughs> you can't predict baseball, Susan. Right. You can't. So I'm in New York. I'm dealing with the aftermath of the Yankees sweep and fans are apoplectic. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. oh, Tell me we're more. poorly constructed. We're not, you know, built to win in October. This guy's no. got to go. That guy's got to go. My friends are losing their they mind. Should. I'm I'm sure the same thing has been happening in Los Angeles. I'm sure the same thing has been happening with Mets fans. I'm sure the same thing has been happening in every other favorite that loses a short series. All of the Dodger fans were online screaming when Andrew Friedman was preparing to hold his post post-mortem press conference, they were all screaming that he has to come out and outline all the major changes that he's going to make This team for a team that won 111 games. Yes, there can only be one winner. These teams are going to play each other. And I'm sorry, any series this small is going to involve a lot of randomness. Jordan, can I ask you one question as the Yankees expert? Because I completely agree with you, but watching the Yankees series... How did you feel when extremely high leverage at-bats in multiple games came down to not just Josh Donaldson at the plate, but Josh Donaldson and Matt Carpenter in the eighth or ninth inning all the time? Let me, I mean, shouldn't a 99-win team be good enough not to, to be depending on those guys to save the season? I think they have holes, but let's not forget that DJ LeMay, who's a, a really key part of this team, and he's hurt, and that Andrew Benintendi was the big offensive acquisition at the deadline, and he's hurt. And then, that yes, Carpenter was leading the league in OPS before he got hurt. Obviously, he wasn't back in full swing when he came back, but uh, I, I digress. My point is this. I've got a friend here in New York who's totally drinking that Kool-Aid. Boone's not a good manager. They're not clutch. They need this. I said, okay. They're not clutch. Who's clutch? And he brought up Bryce Harper because he's having a good postseason. Well, were you aware that before this season, in the postseason, Bryce Harper's numbers were, slash line in 19 career playoff games, were 211, 315, 487. So was he not clutch in those 19 games? And did he suddenly become clutch now? It's just, what have you done for me lately? That's all that is. Austin Riley went one for 15 in the playoffs this year. Mookie Betts hit under 200. We know Aaron Judge is a phenomenal player who had a bad playoffs. You got to stop drawing conclusions from small sample sizes and think that they speak to the player's ability to handle pressure or face good pitching when we have lots of other evidence to the contrary. And, and there and there are there are players and players and players who we don't even remember everybody right. used to think of as chokers because they had a great Clayton Clayton Kershaw, right? People thought that he melted down and was always prone to melting down before he had his, you know, his great run. So I just want to say this, the Phillies can win this World Series and if they win this World Series, Dodgers fans shouldn't start acting like they have an inferior manager or GM who should have built their team like the Phillies because I would still take the Dodgers roster a hundred times out of a hundred over the Phillies roster. But you're saying that's because it's built to make the playoffs every year and get into the tournament, not because there's any guarantee of winning a championship. Just because they have more talent. It, nothing guarantees you a championship, but I will take the more talented roster than the less talented one if my goal is to win. I'm just so mad that Bryce Harper decided to wait till the postseason to do this because he was on my fantasy team this year. <laughs> and when he got back from injury, when, remember when he was lighting or hitting hitting the 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 ball just like seven miles when he was uh, in the minor leagues, and then they brought him up after like two days. They were like, "Yeah, let's bring him in," and then he batted like 227 for the rest of the year. So. Thanks for nothing, Bryce Harper. I guess you can save that for the postseason like a, like a real Stu Gatz. You do it in the playoffs. So now he's got to do it in the World Series. Oh, right. come on, Tom. It, it, was a, it was a pretty loud 227. And it was better than Mickey Moniak. So, I mean, you know, that's all that really matters. What's that? Do you guys hear that? Is that the sound of the World Series? That's Vet the Bet! Let's go! The internet's hottest game show where I track the history of a particular bet 
and I quiz the esteemed panel of contestants here about the findings. Today we have Jordan Brenner and Peter Keating. Are you guys ready to vet the bet? Really glad to be on the show today, Tom. <laughs> oh. Glad to have you. Peter, are you really glad? I am born ready. Let's vet. Let's do everything. Let's vet and vet again. Let's go to the bet. You bet. Okay, the Philadelphia Phillies are one of the biggest underdog stories to reach the World Series and are currently listed at plus 160 at DraftKings Sportsbook to win the World Series. Of course, we have the heavily favored uh, Houston Astros, their opponent. My question is, if you bet $100 on the underdog to pull off the upset in every World Series since the Subway Series of 2000, oh. how much money would you have won or lost? If you bet on the underdog going into the World Series, if you bet $100 every year on the underdog, not on the money line, how much money would you have won or lost based on that underdog bet? Is it A, you lost $1,600? Is it B, you lost $600? Is it C, you won $600? Or D, you won $1,600? And this is the winner of the series not betting on every game, right? Correct. And we're saying if you bet the underdog, right? <laughs> yes, this is the underdog's podcast. No, Peter. It's the, it's the favorites podcast. And Peter, why don't you go first? Yeah, I will go first. And I'll say you will have won $600 since I think the underdogs will have done a little better, but not a lot better. What do you want me to say? You're going to lose 1600 and invalidate the last no, so 20 minutes of our conversation? You can't have lost 1600 because how many World Series have there been in that time? 22. 22. And if you're betting $100 every year? That's some hot math. 22 World Series since 2000. There haven't been few enough underdogs to make you basically lose every time. So we're eliminating that, and I'm eliminating that. So I'm, I'm also between the lose 600 and the win 600 category, I, I was also going to go with Peter. I think there have been enough underdog wins. The Marlins over the Yankees, the Diamondbacks over the Yankees. <laughs> There's a theme here. Everyone over the Yankees. The Braves. Last year. The Braves, the Nationals. I, I'm going to go you would have won $600 as well. I'm, I'm really sorry to be boring, but I, I think Peter's right. The answer is D. Oh! You won oh, $1,600. Wow. How about that? Wow, that's fantastic. The underdog has actually won 12 of the last 22 World Series, and considering some of those underdogs possess fairly long odds, betting on underdogs has been profitable, especially in recent years, where over the last 12 World Series, the underdog has proved victorious in a whopping eight World Series. Eight of the last 12 World Series That's has been great. won by the underdog, most notably the Washington Nationals over, you guessed it, the Houston Astros in 2019. So... Was that the longest odds of the of the sample? That's right. A uh, hundred dollar bet on the Nats would have gotten a two hundred ninety five dollar payout. You do that enough times, you can end up with sixteen hundred dollars in your pocket over the last twenty two years. So the underdogs in World Series, pretty pretty good bet. So should we make a joint show bet right now on the Phillies together in solidarity for the theme of the podcast and a profitable trend? I don't see why not. If you want to make that bet. You got to make sure that you vet the bet. And we just did that on the show. <laughs> Despite interleague play, which should give you more of an idea how teams from different leagues stack up against each other. The underdog from one league has been, the underdog has been winning more often recently. And did you say the 2019 Nationals had the longest odds? Didn't they have Strasburg and Max Scherzer on that team? Yeah, but they were the Nats. Yeah, well, that's, 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 uh, and, and Bryce Harper. And Juan Soto. So, man, bet on chaos. Bet on chaos. Phillies, sub 90 win team winning the World Series. Right now, the odds, it's not the biggest long, long shot, uh, in recent history. The Astros, um, are a favorite, but not crazy favored. I still think the Mets have a shot. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're out of it yet. Just to drive Jordan crazy, I'm going to say, you know, Dusty Baker really knows how to use that bullpen, really knows how to construct a lineup, and the Astros really know how to keep their offense going with one hit after another. So they just they just look so great. They just look so great, don't they, Jordan? Thanks, Peter. <laughs> the Phillies are like the Yankees light. You sit around and wait for Kyle Schwarber to hit a home run. I mean, come on. Are we done? I guess I should say um, the underdog, the longest odds to win in the last 22 years is the Washington Nationals. However, the biggest underdog, a certain Colorado Rockies team in 2007. 
against the Sox. Uh-huh. What were the Marlins against the the Yankees in 0193? Yeah, so they were plus 190. Um, the other side of that bet, the Yankees were minus 230. So basically the pick em was in 2015 with the Mets in, in Kansas City. And they were both minus 100. What happened in that series? What happened in that series is Duda, that the, 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 I was just going to say the Royals decided to exploit the opposition's first baseman's throwing arm. <laughs> and somehow that proved to be a winning strategy for winning the World <laughs> Series. Oh, oh Matt Harvey Ooh. showing the guts and glory to go out there for one more inning. Talking Terry Collins into it. You still wake up in a cold sweat over that decision? <laughs> I did until Edwin Diaz this year because it was a recurring horrible nightmare of Benitez's and Rodriguez's in the ninth inning and Familia's. It was a familiar feeling? <laughs> it had a familiar feeling. 